listeners and welcome to podcast 137 in our series You Should Have Been There with me Simon Calder and me Mick Webb and in this week's Christmas edition we're going to think about stories and try to weigh up the respective merits of travel in fiction and factual travel. Which genre is better at conjuring up journeys to other places? And I'm very glad to say that as our guest, we can welcome back to You Should Have Been There, Jean McNeil, who's director of the prestigious creative writing course at the University of East Anglia, and a travel writer, and you write fiction too, don't you, Jean? That's right. And so no one is better qualified than you to be able to talk about the subject in hand. But just a reminder that last time we spoke to you for podcast 117, by the way, if you want to uh, track it down, um, we were talking about mm-hmm. psychogeography. And I'm intrigued to know um, where you have been since then and how you have enjoyed different locations. Well, thank you so much. First of all, you're too kind, both of you, for your generous introduction. But it's a pleasure to be back on the podcast. And yes, I've been a few places, I have to say, since we last saw each other for work. So the University of East Anglia, I was running a project pretty much single-handedly in African countries. So I have been, in the last um, five, six months, to Namibia and back to Kenya uh, to Canada, that was to visit my mother, <laughs> and then to Zimbabwe and Botswana. Were there any highlights? Yes, there were, and actually I forgot to mention I went to a conference in, in Cape Town, so I, uh, full disclosure, I burned through <laughs> some carbon, but in the pursuit of knowledge, and I think knowledge is, is uh, important. So, yeah, in terms of highlights, um, I, you know, Botswana was really fascinating country it's huge I've never been there I've been to the others but not and there's basically southern Botswana in reality and a northern Botswana in reality in the Okavango Delta it's a very very different ecosystem different way of being different kind of peoples and 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 like response to life attitude to life it's it's the Okavango is where all the tourists go um, um, but Botswana That's where you do is, the safaris, isn't it? In well, the yeah, the Delta safari. They've got everything, basically. And, and it's one last, it's, I think it's the last remaining wilderness of that size in yeah. Africa. Of, it shows you what, like, Africa, primordial Africa, probably was. Um, so I found Botswana really interesting. But Zimbabwe was tough going, but fantastic people. I mean, Zimbabwe is tough going for all sorts of reasons, but um, really amazing, talented people. And um, just to explain the um, the noises off, um, we are actually meeting um, today, uh, not at the Barbican, where we met for the... uh, the, um, the great podcast on psychogeography, but uh, we are in what I suppose you could call a rather generic um, hotel bar um, <laughs> in, in Bloomsbury, which is actually interesting because, of course, it is uh, a very literary um, part of London, and uh, they have very kindly um, turned the uh, music off anyway which wasn't very good, so that we can make this recording. So thank you to them. <laughs> but uh, anyway, should we get on to what well, we I, I think we've got to mention the name. Um, this is called Scoff and Banter. Scoff right. and Banter. So what what a means, great name. I think we have to do some scoffing and some bantering. Like, it's obligatory. We we'll, might even <laughs> put it on the podcast. <laughs> so brace yourselves, everybody. Well, it was either this or just around the corner, there's a place called Tea and Tattle. 
I think you chose the right one. Thank so. you. <laughs> well, surely it's time to get to grips with today's main topic, which is travel fiction. And um, I think there's something quite challenging about this idea because travel books, the ones that you find, well, the ones that I've always found on the shelves of bookshops marked travel um, are without exception factual ones. Um, travel narratives, travelogues, books like In Patagonia by Bruce Chatwin, Wild by Cheryl Strayed, Ice Diaries by Jean McNeil. Um, they are the evocation of a particular person's journey and how they uh, responded to the place they've been to. But um, it's not quite what we're talking about today, is it, Jean? Well, no, we're not talking about travel writing, which, you know, as I might end up saying, I think it's a category that's shifting and it's increasingly problematic in and of itself, like who does it and how they can do it and why they can do it. Anyway, but no, you're right, uh, Mick, we're talking about fiction that a little bit like travel writing takes the reader to an actual extant place and interprets it in a way that the reader is, be, finds very involving. Do you remember the first novel that you read where you thought, wow, I want to go to that place? Ah, okay, yeah, well, I'm going to betray my age here, because I, I, I suppose, I, I can't remember the first novel, but a series of novels that were very influential, which have now fallen out of favour, or kind of literary vogue, Lawrence Durrell's The Alexander yes. Quartet, ah, which if you right. grew up in the 70s, or like, I was a child in the 70s, but I was a precocious reader, so I just read everything, even if it was, you know, way above my head. Um, and, you know, those novels were really very much steeped in Alexandria in a way which was totally involving. And I, there I was growing up in a provincial part of Canada in uh, Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia, you know, way, a long way away from Alexandria. And it's mixed cultures and it's history and it's kind of multi-layered identities and yeah, you know, what did I know? So yeah, that, that I suppose was, were the first novels, there were four of them by Lawrence Durrell that captured my imagination in that way through place by a place and did you vow to go there at your earliest possible opportunity and have you been there since i've never made it to alexandria which is a shame um but i have read cavafy dural i've read other alexandrian writers i've even said something partly in alexandria without having been there and I have no good excuse for not having been there but I often see it flying over when I fly to Kenya if you have a good day and it's not dark yet you have a very very good view of the Delta it's obviously an incredibly special place so one day guys can you one just, day can you I will just get place there. it for us actually <clears throat> where so where is it it's exactly? on the north coast of Egypt just sort of due south of the western part of Crete yeah, so it's, it's, it's the first, you know, urbanization of any size that you see when you hit the African coast flying along that, that oh, uh, right. meridian. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and being the mouth of the Nile, um, just somewhere throughout um, civilization, which has been extremely important and remains mm. so. Um, I'm lucky enough to have been there a couple of times and ah. I just adore it. Very yes. friendly, very beautiful, very relaxed, a big, as you say, uh, multicultural city that uh, is always always rewarding and I do hope you get there soon thank you I shall put it 
top of my list. <laughs> so I'm intrigued then. So th 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 there you were. You were you, you you were devouring these novels in Cape Breton, which, by the way, Mick, I don't think you've been to, but is just the most lovely setting for those of us who wish to be um, on the edge in the wild. Um, so so so, how did that inform your writing? I guess it's about trying to access the spirit of a place and. Yes, I'm fortunate. Coming from Cape Breton, it does have a very distinct um, kind of feeling, you know, energy, history. It's, it's partly because of where it is jutting out into the Atlantic. It's actually historically been a zone of encounter in, in its own terms. But I was, just, I was just so fascinated by place as a child. And I, I really, not, it, this is not a, like a direct rejection of where I was. Um, but I just wanted to be anywhere and everywhere else. I just wanted to see the world from a very, very early age. And I really didn't care what I did, what I had to do, you know, to get out into the world. Whether it was Lima, whether it was London, you know, it didn't matter. You know, I, I just thought real life probably was lived somewhere else. Now that's going to probably... Um, miff a lot of Canadians if they hear this, but, but that was my own, you can call it a delusion, but that was my own conviction. So I was like, from the, like the day I was born, was I was like, get me out of here. I want to like see the world. And unfortunately, I was in a place and a time and a social class where that was actually very, very unlikely. But just getting back to the idea of um, uh, travel and fiction, isn't it true that travel seems to be a part of the plot or the content of many um, really very good uh, novels but actually uh, it's just a part it sort of plays a bit part in the in 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 the novel is that is that a fair point uh, yes I mean you know we could name check any number of, of novels including you know let's start with the greats um, you know Thomas Hardy even though his novels took place roughly speaking in the same area in southwest England but his characters travel over the landscape and provide the most astonishing observations and prose um, yeah. in, in the language and the Brontes clearly again still on the classic British kind of track here and um, you know more recently I suppose some of the novels um, I've been reading are um, yes you know they do they do they do travel um, but I was going to say, yeah, Jean Reese's Good Morning Midnight, um, W.G. Sebald's Rings of Saturn, which is, sits on the cusp between fiction and non-fiction. It's not quite clear what it is, as with a lot of his work. Um, and D.H. Lawrence's work. He was a great travel writer, as well as, you know, one of the greatest novelists ever to live. So, yes, you know, there's a huge panoply. But to answer your question, I think travel in novels forms a function in that it's usually somewhat uh, secondary or subservient to the kind of arc, the, tra the, the general journey arc of the characters, in that it serves the, the, the travel, the going from A to B, serves the story and the characters. So it's, it's something of often a mechanism. Um, uh, yeah, it's a quid pro quo to get what you need to happen in the novel to happen. And also, I think once you put characters, once you take people out of their ordinary environment, say, as we all know, uh, 
certain things can happen that can't happen when they're in their state of, or you know, homeostasis or, or siege. There's an old kind of dichotomy and narrative, which basically, I don't like reducing narrative, but either you're, you're in a sort of siege situation in a narrative or you're in a quest situation. And travel is very much analogous to quest. It is a kind of form of quest. So of course it powers, it can power stories. It has that easy yeah. energy, which we must go from here to here. So that makes a dynamism that otherwise wouldn't be possible. I, I think it's said in Hollywood, is it not, that there's only two kinds of stories. Um, someone goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town that's absolutely right you're like, word for word you've got it and good. you know hollywood and other you know i'm really like i say i don't believe in reducing stories to schema but um but it, it is it is you can't kind of ignore the fact that yes a lot of stories do fall into those kind of general categories of archetypal concerns and and travel is one of them and also people do travel but we have to remember that's relatively recent I mean again as soon as you read the 19th century novels you realize that for them you know to go to Italy was a monumental undertaking and for us it's like obviously people go with the drop yeah. of a hat like 9.99 Ryanair fare to Pisa <laughs> off I go you know <laughs> so it's not the same it doesn't actually serve the same function the other problem with travel that I think we have to be aware of is that you know there's a uh, there's a number of underlying unvoiced questions latent questions about who has the ability to travel like what passport do you hold who has the money to travel and also, you know, race and ethnicity, because some people are not able to travel, and travel forms a kind of a, 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 it's a it's a form of um, salvation, you know, in the, in the migration sense. So travel itself is, um, yeah, one has to be careful, I think, how you look at it. And historically, good travel writing has been written by people who, as valiant and adventurous as they might have been, one way or another, they had the means to do it. And you could say, okay, good for them. They might have raised money to do it. But nonetheless, I think we have to keep that in mind. You know, that basic question of who has the means, who has the privilege, if you will, to travel. <clears throat> well, I was going to mention... Um around the world in 80 days as a novel which is actually entirely about travel yes and you know from from around the world in 80 days to you know Cormac McCarthy's The Road that you know travel again it serves a function which is to make things happen make yeah that kind of narrative dynamism but also to put the characters through the ringer often as well to make sure that the characters yeah. have a, a quest that they must go on that they must you know you know test themselves against um, and that is yeah easy pickings I suppose you could say as, as, as a writer but sometimes the, the travel narrative and the meaning of the or the value of the novel are inextricable if you think of Thomas Mann's Death in Venice another classic okay it's a short novel or a novella yeah. but nonetheless you know if his character von Aschenbach never went if he didn't go to Venice if he just stayed home in music composing there would be no story so travel is the story often I think that's the kind of literature that you, you guys are focusing on I'm really interested in, you mentioned the cusp between fiction and narrative travel writing, um, what we did on our holidays, I would, I would call it. Um, where does it lie for you? Because there you are in both genres. How do you do that then? 
Well, I think when I write fiction that is set in a place, that the place is inherent to the novel, and, and indeed the characters travel through the landscape. So just to give you a, a couple of titles, two novels I wrote set both set in Africa, called The Dow House, East Africa, and Fire on the Mountain, Southern Africa. I don't name the countries, uh, but, but, but they're really very much inspired by certain landscapes. And um, in those novels, I would say that the place, the travel, the moving across the place, is it's, it's more than a backdrop. It's like the psyche. It's actually the engine. It even, it even actually governs the language that I use or the style I write in. So it's like an evocation. I like your word evocation. I use that a lot. It's an evocation of place. And it's, it's also foregrounding the place that you move through to say this place is more than you know, people relegate it to, which is just, you know, an excuse or a backdrop or um, a convenient, um, you know, um, mission, a convenient mission. No, the place, the place itself is real. The place itself has a consciousness. And it, it actually changes the consciousness of those people who move through it. The great novel of Paul, ba the Paul Bowles wrote, Sheltering Sky, is a case in point. His characters are really quite odious to begin with. These are two Americans. If, if, anyway, you know, they go across the desert, they go into Touareg territory, and one, doesn't, one of them doesn't come back, and the other one comes back totally transformed and mad. You know, she's been decultured. Anyway, you know, that is... That is, I think, the most impressive novel that is trying to get to the, the point of this, is that we misunderstand the land. We don't know what the land is. Anyway, so when I'm a fiction writer, I'm thinking about all of that, which is on a metaphorical level. It's meaningful. It's got a lot of power and symbolism. And, um, when, when you're writing like an account of where you are, the main decision I think you have to make is how much of yourself to put into it and oh. how much how much do you want to actually how, how much can you afford to be faithful to what happens because what happens is often very revealing and unpleasant both for you and for other people I mean if you really really went for it and told the truth it would be I don't know that it would be very edifying for anybody. So you have to kind of make a decision about what am I actually writing about here. The exception to this is Paul Theroux, who is a brilliant travel writer, but he's quite, um, he's, he's, he's very grumpy. <laughs> Let's say that, he's very grumpy. But he's very misanthropic, you know, it's like people really... Yeah really really disappointed and let him down constantly and that has its own dark drama but within that he's very perceptive about the reality of reality which I think a lot of travel writers the other exception he never did it Bruce Chatwin I think he he was also somebody who was skating the line between fiction and yeah. non-fiction very very skillfully I don't think he actually lied I don't think Chatwin in any way lied I think he just saw the potential for a story to be better in certain moments, and so I think he was very, very attuned to places. You know, yeah, no, and that's, yeah. yeah, that's what you have to be as as a writer. Not every writer is interested in that. Some writers, they, the whole story comes from the interpersonal dynamic. You know. So then, when you are doing actual travel writing, you must feel so constrained because you would want things to be more 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 dynamic more dramatic than they actually were is that a problem for you given that you you can write fiction and, and 
your universe is uh, is in your control. I think it's easier to tell the truth in fiction because you can put the kind of immense boredom, perhaps, or the sort of sense of falling into some trough of um, dissolution or whatever happens. You know, many things can happen when you're traveling. It's not all like excitement, obviously, and self-revelation and you know morally correct. Epiphanies. It's not when you're you, traveling. You've obviously, often, never like, traveled with Mick. I've never traveled with no Mick. Obviously, Mick. <laughs> it's a great experience, actually. I thoroughly recommend it. No, but I mean, you know, travel. You put your you put yourself technically in a vulnerable position traveling. So there's that, and you lose control. So yeah, so a number of things can happen definitely because you don't have control because you're usually not in mm. your sphere of power. But, yeah, you know, the truth of traveling, or the truth of being and moving through space and time and places, it's easier to put that in fiction because you literally just package it up like a Christmas gift and you give it to your characters. And they voice, you know, the terrible experiences that you've mm. had <laughs> that you actually don't want to tell because, you know, everybody, <laughs> everybody would be disappointed and it wouldn't be very interesting. But you give it to your characters and then it provides a sort of sense of like psychic veracity but writing as oneself ooh yeah you've got to be careful I mean like I say if you really wrote the truth some some writers again Jenny Diskey was one of them she was very forthright and and often I would read her stuff especially Skating to Antarctica which is an excellent book and think ooh you know this is you're being tough on people here you're being tough and so that's often, I think, what, what telling the truth really requires, is to say some things which nobody really wants to hear. Now, given the time of year, given that people will be looking for last-minute gifts, given that they'll be wanting to make resolutions about what they read in the new year, can we each recommend a novel that we would regard as a, the epitome of great fiction writing that brings a place to life? Shall we start with Eugene? Okay, fine. Yeah, you've made the easy slot. Well, I've thought about this a lot, and there are so many good possibilities here. Okay, so um, I am going to rest upon and offer something that's not ordinary travel writing. or Anyway, anyway it's not the most obvious one. It, there's a trilogy of novels by a Zimbabwean writer who I've been working with recently. Her name is Titsi Dangremba. And she wrote three novels, Nervous Conditions, The Book of Not, and This Mournable Body. And so Tsitsi is Zimbabwean. These novels take place in Zimbabwe. But Zimbabwe is, is a, you know, it's, it's, it had a civil war, and its landscape actually still shows that, shows the scars of, 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 of various kinds of conflict, including colonization. So these novels are set in Zimbabwe, written by Zimbabwean, where the characters move through landscape, both literal and metaphorical, of contemporary Zimbabwe. And I think the really interesting thing is that it shows you the place, the landscape, but without a Westerner's gaze, because people have been trained mm. to look very specifically in the West or you know wealthy countries at the rest of the world. So this is this is her inner vision as a Zimbabwean of her country. And um, yeah, I, so I, I, those novels are really really impressive. So I encourage anybody to read them. Well, we will actually put the titles um, on our uh, website as well. So, uh, but that's Titsi Dangaramba. Dangaramba. Yeah, is she from Harare or? Uh, she's from outside of Harare, but now she lives in Harare. Yeah. 
Simon. Okay, well, I, I, it was very easy for me because um, there's just one novel. I, I mean, I'm not uh, I, uh, reading literature and I partied company um, some time ago because I. It's a long story, but uh, it was just never something that that, um, that, 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 that my school ever um, ever was interested in. It was very good at fomenting revolutionary subjects like um, uh, uh, Marx, Marxist economics and things like that. We were learning that. We weren't reading books, so uh, that's my excuse um, uh, for that. But um, on the Black Hill by Bruce Chapwin. So a extraordinary travel writer who turns his hand to um, a bit of fiction about two um, elderly uh, farming brothers in southeastern corner of Wales and it's a beautiful novel that absolutely brings the place to life um, it was made into I think quite an unsuccessful film um, but th what I love about it is that it's set around their farm called The Vision and I could um, very easily, Jean and Mick, give you a ticket to Abergavenny and a phone number for a local taxi and you could be there in a couple of hours. And it's still there. There's a big sign outside saying, please don't ask to be shown around because we don't do that. It's privately owned. But the landscape that uh, he describes is so um, full of, of, of energy, so you just want to be there and I did want to be there and I went along and I made my pilgrimage and I discovered that not only is it a wonderful evocation my turn to use that word of a, a lovely part of the world but it also entices you there and when you get there you regard you, you, you realize that actually one of the finest one-day hikes begins there and you can go up along a ridge and look over to England one side and Wales on the other and you just feel blessed to be able to explore this terrain and all thanks to a um, travel writer who was um, turning his hand to a bit of fiction. So I don't know if you have read it, but I would urge you both... Oh, of course you have. You've read everything. Um, and um, have you been to that particular part of Wales? I've been to the Brecon Beacons, so okay. not too far away. Yeah, yeah, um, I know. Anyway, go and, go and have a look at the farm. Yeah. They might they probably let you in. You've got um, special, special access. <laughs> <laughs> Mick, go on then. And you won't meet the two brothers who are at the uh, at the heart of the novel. No, um, who of course but never existed. that's a strange thing. When you read a novel that's so immersed in a landscape, you go there and you actually project the people onto mm, yeah. the scene, whether or not they're there. You know, they're often, usually they're not because they're figments of somebody else's imagination. Yeah. But you do that. And that, that. I think that's great. You're kind of accompanied by the characters. Mm. Mick, go on, your turn. Yeah, well, your my, turn. my turn. Well, my, my, my novel is... Actually, I've got to pick it up because it's got such a complicated title. I... I can never remember it. It's called Mount Analogue um, by uh, a, a French writer called René Dumal. Um, but it's actually the subtitle is the most important thing. A novel of symbolically authentic non-Euclidean adventures in mountain climbing. Um, wow. Which of course sounds ludicrously yes. um, pretentious. Um, but it is um, supremely French and extremely good. And I can actually say that I absolutely loved it and completely um, uh, recommend it. Although I have never finished it. Because it's not <laughs> finished. Because poor old René actually died before he completed uh, the, the book. Um, and it, I, I, it's just... It's 
mad um, but brilliant and um, it's 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 the story of a um, an expedition to discover a mountain that Mount Analog which doesn't exist except the um, the leader of the expedition and indeed the narrator who is the sort of Rene character um, have worked out ought to exist um, but that our current um, understanding of physics doesn't allow us to see it and it's actually a mountain <laughs> is that there is... a mount digital in this mount <laughs> <laughs> well, if, oh we if, see mount digital but see, oh mount analog is just you see if Rene had lived maybe <laughs> you see, this, this novel is waiting to be completed <laughs> and maybe gee, you maybe would like to do it I was thinking on, it, it, is, it is such good fun and yeah. so mad well, we'll be putting all the details of all those books on the Anchor.fm website, and we'd love to hear from you about your favourite work of fiction that has inspired a journey. Of course, you can get in touch with us. Um, best way is on Twitter at you should have BT. Jean McNeil, thank you so much for spending time with us. We hope that perhaps we can talk in 2023. But I understand you've got your own wonderful festive journey to Barcelona. Yes, Simon, I am going to Barcelona, let's hope so, anyway, on Friday the 23rd of December. So I'll spend a week there for Christmas with friends and family. Yeah. I wish you a fantastic Christmas and um, I hope your flight goes on time, your luggage accompanies you and it comes back with you as well. Thank you, thank you. I shall be praying to all the gods of travel logistics, which I, who I always do. I'm very observant. I, but um, so let's hope that things go smoothly for all of us this Christmas. So until next time, probably uh, 2023 from me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys. Happy Christmas. Um...